Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Brad Gilmore, and he wrote a book with Mike Kalinowski titled Bond, James Bond. Unfortunately, Mike cannot make it, but I'm delighted to have Brad alongside. The subtitle of the book is Exploring the Shaken and Stirred History of Ian Fleming's 007. It was just published February 15th, 2022, and this is not Brad's first book he'd published back in 2021, a book about Back to the Future titled Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. And Brad Gilmore is a writer, television host, and radio personality born and raised in Houston, Texas. He has lent his talents to several projects and organizations, including the CW Network, Movie of Trivia, Schmodown, CBS Radio, and ESPN Radio. Since 2012, Brad has been the host of the Brad Gilmore Show, covering music, sports, and entertainment, and he serves as the executive producer and host of Back to the Future, the podcast. Brad is the longest tenured announcer for the WWE Hall of Famer Booker T's Reality of Wrestling promotion in Texas and co-chairs the popular radio show and podcast, The Hall of Fame with Booker T and Brad Gilmore. He's an alumnus of the University of Houston, where he graduated summa cum laude with a degree in communication studies. He is a proud husband, son, brother, and uncle of seven. So I'm um, delighted to have him to talk about this book on James Bond. So Brad Gilmore, welcome to the show. Uh, what a fantastic and phenomenal introduction, William. I'm excited. I'm excited to be on William Ramsey Investigates. I mean, I'm excited Good. to investigate James Bond. That's what I'm excited to do. Good, because I think it's important. I mean, you go into this book, you have a great knowledge. I think this book reflects how many of these films, you, you list them as 25 films you know of and you went through with Mike. Uh, I think it's important to investigate because it might be one of the most, at least in the top five franchises, in movie history, right? Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, James Bond. So yeah, and, this and, is and hyper influential. For, for the longest time too, James Bond was the number one uh, top grossing movie franchise of all time until Harry Potter uh, dethroned them. And then um, it was then again surpassed by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, uh, you know, Think you're playing a little bit with house money there. You just throw the MCU on. It's not a singular movie, but never, nevertheless, I digress. Um, so it's definitely been influential, and James Bond has been generational. Uh, those other films that you discussed, they all came out, you know, within my lifetime, um, most definitely, and, and and several other people's. But the James Bond series of films has spanned sixty plus years, um, since 1962. Uh, when Sean Connery first stepped on stage with Dr. No. So, and before that it was the novel. So this is a character whose lineage dates back decades and decades and decades, and just has a wealth of information, trivia, knowledge, behind the scenes information. And also those 25 official films, the couple unofficial films, there's definitely a lot to, to dive into. Right. I mean, it is a saga of different characters, different lead roles, a lot of behind the scenes. And you really detailed a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that I didn't know of in the book. Maybe we could just go back to the beginning. Who was Ian Fleming? For people who may not have known the kind of genesis of this story, maybe you could just go back into that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Ian Fleming is, of course, the author and the creator of James Bond um, and was very successful just as a writer himself. Uh, before Bond even became the film franchise that we know today, he is somebody who served, you know, in the in the military and was also involved in a lot of the 
spy uh, world. He, he he was at least a part of him was in was what James Bond became to be. And if you do a lot of background on Ian Fleming, his his father even had ties to the to the government at the time, working under Winston Churchill um, back you know in the World Wars. So this is a world that he was very familiar with at a very early age and explored it further into his early 20s, into adulthood, and then um, put it kind of all on the page for us to read. And he typed each one of these books from, you know, by hand on his typewriter, his old, you know, ribbon typewriter at his estate that he called Goldeneye in Jamaica, uh, which is where they got the title for the Pierce Brosnan film. So definitely a very interesting individual. Yeah, so really fascinating background. There's pictures of him with Lucky Luciano. He knew a lot of different people, Aleister Crowley, uh, and had friends in the States. He was through intelligence. Um, and how he always kind of wanted to write a book. So once the war ended and he found time, that's really was his goal, right? Was to you said he took two months out of every year to start this sit and write his book, mm -hmm. sit and write the series. And and of course, I always enjoy the uh the small bits of trivia of, of how things came to be I'm, I'm really i love the documentaries or the or stories of how the movies got to be how the books came to be how whatever and in this case one of my favorite things when researching the origins of the character of james bond was where ian fleming even got the name of the character from he was trying to find because as you know, uh, William, just naming, whether it's a show, a book, a podcast, a, a film, a script, uh, is very difficult. And sometimes it's sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. And for a character like James Bond, he was trying to figure out, how could I name this, this, this spy? This, the spy to end all spies is what he wanted to do. And when he was in Jamaica, he did a lot of bird watching and he had a, what he referred to as his Bible, which was a book called Birds of the West Indies. And the author's name was James Bond. And then he just picked up the name from there. And now it's synonymous with a super spy. Right. And he had everything kind of couched when he wrote it all down. It was everything was in the whole English system. But he started out with Casino Royale. That was his first book, right? Casino Royale was the first story. It was the origins of James Bond. It was always meant to, to be the first film, and obviously things got in the way of that, but it was the first one. And really, when you go read the Ian Fleming novels, they're very different than what you may expect. If you're a, if you're a Bond fan from cinema, and then you say, oh, I want to go read the book. I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble out there, but Moonraker the book is very different than Moonraker the movie. <laughs> they, they're, they're not very synonymous in, in any stretch of the imagination other than the title. But um, but but when you read the character that Bond was, he very or is still today, very cold, very calculating, um, a blunt instrument, as he's been described. And uh, that that was what Ian Fleming did very well. And also Fleming, I really enjoy his style of writing, although a lot of the things that are said and done in the Bond novels probably wouldn't fly today for for better uh, in 2022. But um, I really love the the literary style in which he wrote. I mean, he said things like Bond's gun spoke only once. And I just love how he describes such a brutal, cold-blooded assassination in a, such a poetic way. 
saying Bond's gun only spoke once. That always stuck out to me from his novels. So you've read some of those too. Then I've never read any of Fleming's work. So I, I'm curious about how they played out. Because you're right, there's a difference between the movies and the books, right? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, in most of the books, I'd say Casino Royale is probably the one that's closest to reality as as far as um, being close. The, the narrative of the story is very close to the narrative of the movie. It's the origins of Bond. It does end in a in a big game. Uh, at the end of, of the novel, there's the torture scene. There's all those things. That's the one that's probably the closest to the movie itself. All the other ones, it's like, okay, we'll take the title of that, and then we'll kind of write our own story that makes sense for us. There's some elements, but they're not very faithful to the source material. Gotcha. And can you talk about the kind of producers? It really, the drive towards the films was, what, Broccoli and Saltzman. Can you talk about the the genesis and their relationship and how these movies got started. Yeah. Um, of course, Ian Fleming always wanted Bond to be on the big screen. Um, he had to settle in the late fifties, actually 1950, 19 in mid, mid late 1950s for Casino Royale to be produced um, on CBS television in the, in the United States as a kind of movie of the week, if you will. And it was um High stakes Jimmy Bond. It was an American who portrayed uh, James Bond, and it was a made-for-TV movie. So that's why Casino Royale's rights were tied up. But Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman were both um, film producers, uh, had moderate successes, nothing that you or I would discuss in today's generation. But back then, they had water cooler uh, films that, that everybody might know of the time. And they both had an interest in James Bond. And it took them quite a bit of time to secure the rights and then find funding to do these films. And they actually formed a production company together ex exclusively to produce these Bond movies. And they said that they put everything in it and they had nothing to lose. So they uh, they called the, the production company Everything or Nothing. And it's also Eon Productions is what most people know it as, E-O-N. And they produced and continue to produce Eon Productions, uh, every Bond film uh, that we deem an official one, other than 1967's Casino Royale and 1983's Never Say Never Again. Every other Bond movie you've ever heard of has been produced by the Broccoli and Saltzman family, now just the Broccoli family. Wow, interesting. And so Saltzman teamed up with Broccoli for what reason did, did they meet up? And they, they kind of had an uncomfortable partnership, right? They, I mean, at first it was thick as they were thick as thieves. Um, they, they very much loved one another as with everything. Somebody who starts off your best friend, once, once money and business gets involved and creative decisions are juxtaposed to one another, you, you fall out of favor, but they, they became, they came together initially over a, a common goal. They both had interest in the bond stories they both wanted to make the film, so they thought, let's team up and do this rather than work against one another. Let's work with one another. And um, Saltzman was a very extravagant guy. This is a man who dressed in very bright primary colors every day. He would wear all blue or all red or all yellow, and he was a very happy individual. Um, but when it came to business, he was uh, on the shrewder side. Cubby Broccoli was somebody who was – what you um, kind of think of as an Italian's Italian in a way, right? Very about family, very warm. He would actually 
show up on set and he would cook breakfast and lunch for the entire cast and crew. He really loved the, uh, the, the process of making films and felt that it was a family atmosphere. Um, as time went on again, they just kind of didn't see eye to eye and they separated. And Saltzman was almost a little bit legendary for having riffs with not only Broccoli, but with the first man to play James Bond, Sean Connery. They famously, at one point, couldn't even be on the same set together. And if Connery was in the middle of a take and Saltzman walked on the set, he would stop talking in the middle of a take and wait for Harry Saltzman to leave the set. Um, then Cubby and, Cubby and Sean Connery also, toward the latter portions, didn't get along. When Sean was doing Never Say Never Again, he appeared on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, which I'm sure, as you remember, William is was was the show that everybody watched every night. So if you said something on Carson, everybody's going to hear about it. And when asked who is the greatest Bond villain of all time, Sean Connery smirked, looked at Johnny Carson and said, Cubby Broccoli, of course. So there were tensions between the producers and their stars, but that's a tale as old as time. And how did they decide on Connery? So at first they were going after big brand name actors like your Cary Grant's was one of them. Uh, Cary Grant was somebody who they really, really, really wanted to be Bond. And he said, oh, I'm interested, but I, I don't want to do more than one. And Harry and and uh, Cubby Broccoli had a vision that was really decades before their time. They saw this as a story that could be continued on and on again. They thought about this idea of a, of a franchise before it was something that was obvious. Nowadays, if you want to produce a, a Spider-Man film and you go and you cast Spider-Man, you automatically know we got to sign this guy for six films, seven films, eight films. Back then, that wasn't really a concept that was thought of. So people such as Cary Grant, they turned down the role because they didn't want to do more than one. So then they tried to find an actor who they thought possessed the physical characteristics of a James Bond, but could also be charming. Also someone that women found attractive. And Sean Connery was somebody who had just broken into acting. He was very young at the time uh, in his acting career. He had done kind of a Disney musical uh, that, that, that wasn't very successful. He had done some things. In his early uh, years, he was actually a Mr. Universe competitor in Scotland, and where he was from. And so they, he came into screen test, and it was actually Cubby Broccoli's wife that made the ultimate decision because they looked at his screen test and Cubby Broccoli says, what do you think of him? And his wife said, oh, I think he's great. She, and Cubby goes, well, do you think he's sexy? And she goes, I absolutely think he's sexy. And that sealed the deal for Cubby Broccoli, just his wife's physical attraction to Sean Connery. And, you know, that was lightning in a bottle. Sean Connery, in my estimation, uh, just hit it out of the park and whatever other metaphor or cliche you want to use as far as becoming James Bond and starting that franchise. He was really the perfect character to do so. And you wanted someone who was relatively unknown because you didn't want, and, and, and franchises like star Wars that you mentioned, uh, Superman, Harry Potter, a lot of these franchises actually followed in the similar vein. They didn't want a big recognizable star. You want people to be lost in this story and that's what they were able to do with 1962's Dr. No. It's amazing. Like, he's so well-known right now. It's hard to believe at one point, like, before that, he was... I think you wrote in your book, like, he knew 
one of the directors, the early directors, he was like a like a lesser or lesser role in an earlier film too, right? So he was yeah. kind of on the way up, yeah. Really fascinating. And so those were those, and these were financially right off the bat very successful films, right? Yeah, I mean, by today's standards, um, they would be mega blockbusters. But but you have to remember, the American blockbuster as we know it wasn't really. A, a coin term until Steven Spielberg came out with Jaws. That Jaws was the first time you heard of the summer blockbuster. Prior to that, we, we never really used that term. But if you look back at the success of the franchise of, of James Bond, from the get-go, it was profitable. It was appealing to audiences of all types. Critics liked it. Uh, commercial audiences liked it. Uh, they got a claim. They got a war to claim, especially when they got to the third installment of, of Goldfinger that was nominated for Academy Awards. So this was everything that you wanted from a film franchise. And the fact that it was profitable only was made it even better. And up until uh, later in the series, and I'm talking um, in the Daniel Craig films, Sean Connery's movies were still the highest grossing James Bond films of all time up until, uh, I guess, about. 10 years or so ago. Right. I think you wrote in, in today's dollars, uh, Dr. No was a billion dollars, right? So it's mm -hmm. huge. Yeah, huge it's a massive hit. Yeah. But behind the scenes, there was problems. There was always litigation underneath the surface. I think Connery sued the producers at one point. You talk, a lot of people don't know the story of Kevin McClory, and you mm -hmm. just mentioned ELN Productions. Can you talk about the foundation and how strange some of these movies came out that it was just very odd the way it unraveled over time. Can you? Yeah, again, I guess, it, and, and I'm a layman to it as well, when you talk about how the Hollywood studio system works and how rights and, and things of that nature and option periods and all these different things. Um, of course, Sean Connery had his issues mainly about pay. He didn't think that he was paid enough for the films. And Connery actually got to a point to where he was so famous. I mean, he was he was think about Elvis, Michael Jackson, Beatlemania, Bieber fever, sync. I mean, whoever you think the biggest crazes were of all time, Sean Connery was the most famous person, not just in America, on the planet. It got so bad by the time he got to You Only Live Twice, he couldn't even go to a restroom without photographers trying to crawl over stalls to take pictures of him. Uh, it was that level of fame that kind of drove him away and the pay discrepancies they eventually came to terms on that, and that's why he came back for 1969's Diamonds Are Forever. But the, the Kevin McClory was a man who approached Ian Fleming really before Eon Productions was, was in production with any of the Bond films. He came to Ian Fleming and thought about, let's write a screenplay together for James Bond. Let's create an original story that's just for the screen, not one of your novels. Let's do something new. And so... Ian Fleming, as well as Kevin McClory and another gentleman, they all got together and they wrote the screenplay Thunderball. And they tried to shop it around. And Thunderball was a very influential story in the James Bond world because it introduced us to Spectre, which was the um, organization that was kind of the, the big bad in all the Bond uh, films, early Bond films and novels. Um, and, and that introduced us to Blofeld. And Blofeld is the the stereotypical Bond villain with the cat on his lap, right? So these were very important. Those were very important characters that were introduced in Thunderball. 
So Ian Fleming, after they couldn't get the story sold or the screenplay developed into a film, said, well, you know, I'll just write a story about it. I'll just write the uh, the novel Thunderbolt. I mean, if we're not going to get it made into a movie, I'll just make the novel. And uh, Kevin McClory, and I, you know what? He gets cast as a very evil individual. I understand fully why he was upset because he sat down and created characters that were then published uh, in a book that he had nothing to do with. So he takes Ian Fleming to court over the rights to the characters. And then when the films were going to be made, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli came together and said, look, this McClory guy, he might end up being a problem for us. So let's just let's just bring him into the fold. Let's let's let him make Thunderball with us. And Thunderball doesn't say produced by Eon Productions. It doesn't say produced by Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. It says produced by Kevin McClory. And he came in to do Thunderball. But here's where they made the mistake. Um, as a part of their deal, they allowed Kevin McClory the rights to, the rights to remake Thunderball every 10 years after its release. So from 1965 on... He had, uh, after 10 years, after 1965, he had the rights to remake the films. So it was a constant battle. And it was Kevin McClory constantly trying to remake Thunderball, which he was successful once uh, with Never Say Never Again, and was almost successful again with Timothy Dalton uh, in the early two, late 90s, early 2000s to make Thunderball for a third time. And eventually his estate, after he passed, um, you know, they were able to come to terms with the with the uh, Broccoli family and Eon Productions and Sony Pictures. And that's how they were able to uh, get Kevin McClory finally away from kind of all came back together. And Never and Say Never Again is a very it's an outlier. It's kind of a strange piece in the whole James Bond saga. Would you agree with that? It's very different, especially when I first saw Never Say Never Again, I obviously was young and I had no idea about backstage politics of making a film. So to me, it was just another James Bond movie. I had no idea that it was a separate entry into the series. So there are things that definitely stand out as, as odd and different. And Sean Connery is considerably older at the time. Um, this is a man in his sixties. I will still say ruggedly good looking dude, even into his sixties. Um, and had a uh, great toupee. Whoever did Sean Connery's toupees should really have gotten an Academy Award for uh, either costume or makeup and design because um, I it wasn't actually until this book I didn't realize how early on into the series he had uh, was wearing toupees. I mean, it was essentially from the get go. But by really? the time by the time Thunderball came on, he was completely bald. And so he had uh, two pays for the entirety. But anyway, to answer your question, yeah, Never Say Never Again was was very um, was very different. I enjoy the film. I do. I, I like Never Say Never Again. I actually think it's not as bad as people cast it off to be. But it's not what you want from a tried and true James Bond film. It, it doesn't give you the feel that the early ones did. It doesn't give you the feel of... Uh, the Eon production series, but you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to point out to people. Yeah. Cause I mean, it just it kind of comes out. That was, that was McClory's attempt to get a little piece of that pie. And you break down the bond films into these eras of their leads, right? So you have Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton, Brosnan, and then Craig. So there's, it's, 
it's hard to believe there's been that many that's somebody who's kind of older. It's really been a lot of different movies. I mean, it's pretty incredible. I mean, Lazenby only lasted one show, right? Or one film. One film. Um, and George Lazenby's story is actually out of and this might even be surprising to, to people, but out of everything that I researched and understood and learned about the Bond series, his origin story of even getting the role was perhaps the most fascinating thing out of every of every aspect of the James Bond cine, cinematic saga. This is a guy who had no, like not a little bit, zero, zero acting experience. And he found out that Sean Connery was leaving. He was a male model from Australia. Before that, he was a used car salesman. And somebody saw him. He started taking photographs. And then they said, hey, you know, they're looking for James Bond. And he had it in his head. I'm going to be the next James Bond. This is a guy who's 28 years old at the time and decided to go to Sean Connery's barber, get his hair cut just like him. At the time, he had kind of a longer haircut. He went and got his hair cut just like Bond did. He went to Savile Row, which is where Sean Connery's suits were tailored for the films. He asked the tailor who was there, hey, I want to get a suit like Sean Connery's. And the tailor said, oh, you know what? We actually have one of Sean Connery's suits right here. And he goes, oh, that's great. And when the tailor went to the back, George Lazenby stole Sean Connery's actual suit out of Savile Row, put it on, marched right into Harry Saltzman's office and said, I heard you're looking for the next James Bond. And when Harry Saltzman saw him, he looked the part. And they asked him, so where have you, what, you know, what movies have you done? And Lazenby said, I named every possible place that they couldn't research that I would have done a movie. Oh, I did one in Japan. I did one in Russia. I did one in Yugoslavia. I did one here. I did one there. And they're like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. They cast him in the role of James Bond after they put him through a literal, literal physical battery of tests. They asked him, can you ride horses? He would ride a horse. Can you swim? He did a bunch of laps in the pool. They were even worried about his, uh, and you, know, you got to remember this is the 1960s. They were worried about his sexual orientation. They thought because he was a model, perhaps, you know, he wasn't a heterosexual. So they even, <laughs> as strange as it sounds, tested him on that. Uh, really? Wow. They, they, sent, they sent a lady of the night up to his room to see if he would, um, uh, how do you say, perform, I guess. And uh, they were pleased with his results, I assume. So he uh, he got the role of James Bond, and as they're starting production, he he went to the director and said, "I have to be honest with you. I've never acted a day before in my life." And the director just looked at him and started laughing and said, "What do you mean? You fooled the most ruthless producers in all of Hollywood to get the biggest role in, in the world right now. Of course you're an actor. Don't say a word to anybody. I'm going to make you the next James Bond." And then he went and did, <laughs> did on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They seemed to like him so much, they offered him six more films. Wow. They wanted him to do six more films at a million dollars each, and he turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast in the role as James Bond. And <laughs> the, the ironic thing about it is that's all anyone knows him for. And I got to speak to George Lazenby uh, about two months or three months ago at this time. And um, we spoke about the films and things of that nature, and he definitely says it's his biggest regret of his life is – not taking those six films for a million dollars each. His life would have been totally different. He mm -hmm. said it only lasted one. And I think that Her Majesty's Secret Service is well-received. Like, I think he did a pretty good job. Would you agree with that? I, I do. And you know what? It's one of those films that at the time, again, he's, he's trying to fill the shoes of Sean Connery, which is 
very difficult for any actor, especially one who's never acted before. So I think the criticism at the time was a little bit unduly harsh. People assumed that he was fired, which he wasn't. They actually loved his performance. They wanted him back. So I think that the fact that he wasn't Sean, coupled with the fact that there's a narrative out there that his movie isn't good because he was fired from it, has made people bury on Her Majesty's Secret Service for too long. But over the last 10 or 15 years or so, if you look at anybody's top 10 list, a movie critic or a layman, they're all going to say on Her Majesty's Secret Service is in the top 10 Bond movies. And I think that he did a very serviceable job as 007. And I would have loved to see him continue on in the role. But had he continued on, we wouldn't have gotten Sir Roger Moore. So in some ways, I'm glad that he didn't. Yeah, no, it's really amazing. Like his decision making, what happened? And you and Mike have your top 10 rankings at the end of the book. So yes. you go through best villain, female, song, movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys really are. Uh, do you guys have a different outlook too? I think oh, that was, I was interested. You know, it was interesting. And, and, and I don't mind giving this away uh, for fans of the book because this will definitely illuminate your point, William, of how Mike and I have very, very different ways of looking at these films is we had to rank our top six uh, James Bonds, obviously, in order of what we thought the best to the worst was. Mike and I have the same exact order, except for one and six are switched. Um, I think Sean Connery's the best of all time, and he thinks Timothy Dalton is. And I think Timothy Dalton's my least favorite Bond, and he thinks Sean Connery's his least favorite Bond. So we definitely don't see eye to eye on certain things. And that's what made this, this the process of writing this so much fun, was there, of course, is the uh, factual researched heavy uh, backstories to how these films were made, but also we get to interject our our own personal uh, criticisms and critiques and stories of of the films. So um, it was a, it was an interesting process to collaborate with somebody who we saw differently about him, but we have the same passion for James Bond. Right. It is interesting. You have little kind of side notes in the book. It's clearly like a, a nonfiction fan piece. Like you guys are really looking at all those films. A lot of the, the details I didn't even, I missed a lot of the stuff. So you filled in a lot for me in this book. Really fascinating. But they like, what did you think about more? I I've heard that more people thought he was too kind of a pretty boy, I guess. And Dalton was too nervous. He wasn't as, as confident and that's why he didn't get the roles. What's your critique of more Dalton? Um, I think that Roger Moore was a he he had fun in James Bond and I really think a lot of the times it's a reflection of of what's going on at the time and Bond likes to pick up on trends but also it likes to be escapism so when you're in the midst of the Cold War Vietnam and things of that are going on the world is at war you don't want to go to a James Bond film that's very serious and makes you think about all the atrocities going on in the world. You want to go to something that's escapist. And that's what Roger Moore was. He was an escapist James Bond. He was somebody who was actually older than Sean Connery when he, older than Sean Connery when he took over the role. Roger Moore is the oldest man to play James Bond. And um, um, he was older than Sean uh, was. And Sean, I believe, I got to go back and look at their ages at the time. But Roger Moore was in his mid forties when he took over. For, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, he was. That. He, well, he, he was. He's a. I mean, he's very young looking. I didn't know he was in his mid. Yeah, he was. He was. He was in his mid forties when he took over Bond. Yeah, he looked much younger than Sean Connery did. Sean Connery. He he aged pretty. He was a. He was a rugged uh, uh, gentleman. But but Moore was very silly. He was 
a little bit more of the pretty boy type. Um, but I think that his movies were needed to continue the franchise. You need to evolve. You need to ebb and flow. You can't hit the same notes every single time. And I think that Roger Moore, sure, he did Moonraker. Sure, there's a movie of his where the main villain is defeated by blowing him up like a balloon and popping him. Sure, there's a pigeon that double takes when James Bond walks by. Sure, there's a snake charmer that plays the James Bond theme uh, in the middle of the movie. But Roger Moore had a sense of, of class, and I really loved I loved uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. For Your Eyes Only, Live and Let Die. I thought those were all very, very strong entries. And you got to think, he did seven James Bond films, the most of any actor. And they can't all be winners. But I think that Roger Moore did a very, very good job of being different than Sean and adding to the franchise, not taking away from it. Yeah, I thought he did a good job too. And you, I mean, one of the things your book points out, some things that you overlook is that this is a, Bond is a huge industry, comics, merchandising, music, video games, video games. I mean, animated stuff. So mm -hmm. they really branched out from that original concept. It really is amazing how much media and uh, influence it's had. Can you talk yeah, about and, that? and when you talk about also the video games is there is an entire generation, people of my age range and a little bit older. Um, there's an entire generation that was influenced by the N64 game GoldenEye. Uh, this was something that people would play hours on end and they may have never even seen or heard of a James Bond film, but they knew the video game of Goldeneye. And it was um, in 2006, I believe, maybe seven, where they released From Russia Would Love, the video game, which they actually got to have Sean Connery come back and voice James Bond in the video game, which was a really cool thing for us Bond fans. And um, you're absolutely right. There was an animated cartoon. There was James Bond Jr. There was the comic book series. The books are still written to this day. They still have brand new James Bond books that come out every other year, uh, it seems like. And they try to write them in the, in the vein of Ian Fleming. So the media goes way beyond the films. And there's been talk in recent years of wouldn't it be great to do a James Bond miniseries or let's do... Uh, eight episode streaming series on Netflix about Q or about Money Penny or Felix Leiter. But um, it seems that fans really just want to see Bond in the cinema and they really care about the main character itself. Although there's probably a million stories you could do on M or Felix Leiter or Money Penny or Q or whomever. Um, hey, I would like to see a, a mini series on, on Goldfinger and Oddjob and their relationship and things of that nature. But people care about James Bond, and I think it's always going to be a cinematic adventure. I don't think we'll get a television adaptation anytime soon. But, yeah, there's still going to be books, video games, and comic strips. Yeah, and like you said at your conclusion, we know it's a new era because Amazon bought the entire suite of stuff. Can you talk about that? That happened recently, right? Yeah, this happened last year um, of Amazon buying Sony Pictures, essentially, and they're going to be producing James Bond from now on. And again, people have their qualms with that. I am always, for better or for worse, an eternal optimist. I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I think the more money you can put behind Bond, the better. And Amazon, I don't know if you know this, William, has a lot of money. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> they've got a couple, they got a couple of buckets in the bank. If they can spend eight and a half billion dollars on the whole Bond 
uh, history or portfolio, I think they can. They have. And some really, that the James Bond franchise was the most valuable thing that they purchased in that in that big wow. deal. I mean, it, it, out of everything that they had, that was wow. the most profitable and the most valuable uh, object that they were able to obtain because the James Bond series of films has only gotten more popular. And this is a character that you would have thought would have died a long time ago. Really? I mean, when you think about, if you go and watch Goldfinger, for instance, there's a scene in Goldfinger that would never fly today. And if and this is where Sean Connery's having a conversation with Felix Leiter. There's a masseuse named Tink. Uh, he says, Felix, say hi to Tink. Tink, say hi to Felix. He turns Tink around. He slaps her on the behind and says, goodbye, Tink. This is man talk. Now, if we still had that same character, of Sean Connery as uh, James Bond for the entirety of the series, we wouldn't have been able to do this book. There have been maybe four movies, right? Five movies. Um, so Bond evolves. Where Bond goes next, I really don't know. I like the fact that we can put more money behind him. I think that there's going to be a, um, a, a another uh, film in production here soon, but uh, I'm excited. Well, you can this. see you can see what Amazon has done with the Lord of the Rings, right? They're kind yeah. of branching off and doing something. So you may see something on the horizon with that. If they have full control and don't have to worry about lawsuits mm -hmm. or other families. I got a question from Hill Doggy. How was the Broccoli family involved with this sell? It was so, MGM Studios to Amazon, Hill Doggy. That's what happened. Right, right. Um, and, 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 of course, uh, the Broccoli family still produces the James Bond films, and they have uh, existing contracts with, with studios. At one time, it was uh, United Artists. And before moving to MGM and then uh, and then, you know, now they're with Amazon Studios. Do you know, have you ever heard of anything of Emma Keith, Keith Sweetass is Fleming MI5? Have you ever heard anything like that? I haven't. Yeah, I mean, again, there, this is Ian Fleming was in the, the uh, British military before, you know, we could really keep it wasn't like the internet age where you had all these documents floating out there when you try to find um information about ian fleming in the military it's it's kind of sparse out there i mean i, I mean he was definitely uh in in naval intelligence if i do recall he was somebody who um definitely was a real deal spy but as far as what we know about him you know it's 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 hard to say what's real from the fake. And with anything, he's become fabulized. There's stories out there about Ian Fleming that when I was researching the book and along with Mike, is is you you're not sure if it's accurate. It was hard to find sourcing for some of the stories. So I don't know the real from the fake. And perhaps perhaps Ian wanted it that way. Well, there's one a very interesting interview with him, <coughs> excuse me, after the war. It's from the uh Canadian public station up there where he says i could tell you more but i'd be in violation of the national security uh, secrecy mm -hmm. act so he couldn't talk about a lot of that stuff i can send that to you i have it somewhere it's really a fascinating interview because you can tell that he's holding stuff back so that he might have been an asset prior to world war ii when he was in germany too because he spoke german but yeah. uh i really liked reading this book is there anything you'd like to add or anything i missed before we wrap this up um well you know i, I just think that again if you're a James Bond fan, and, and this is similar for my first book was about Back to the Future. Um, and when I set to write that book, um, it's called A Celebration 
of the greatest time travel story ever told. And I called it that because I wanted to celebrate these movies. They mean so much to me. Um, they're generational. I bonded with family members over them. Same as James Bond. I, I dedicated this book to my dad because um, he was the one who exposed me to James Bond. And it was a bonding, quite literally, moment uh, for he and I. Every time there's a new Bond movie that comes out, we go, we rush out to the theater to see it. I'm, I'm sorry to say my first cinematic experience in the theater with James Bond was Die Another Day, which is not uh, thought of as one of the better entries into the series, but it had Halle Berry, William. I mean, how bad can it be, right? And how bad can it be? Um, but but uh, if, if you're a fan of the films, you're going to learn something new and you're going to enjoy going down the... Uh, the, the timeline and reliving some of these great Bond moments, these Bond gadgets, the Bond uh, women, the Bond films, and the songs, uh, which is something that I really loved. I loved having to try to figure out what are the top 10 Bond songs of all time because each one of them is a hit in its own right. So if you they're like, still playing them on the radio. They still pop up. Some of oh, well, you Duran, know, some of that was the one I was going to bring up. Duran Duran. A lot of people don't even know that's a Bond song. <laughs> um, Carly, uh, Carly Simons, Nobody Does It Better. Some people have no idea that that's a Bond song. People don't know Live and Let Die is a Bond song because Guns N' Roses covered it and then this person covered it. So uh, it is interesting how many of those really go into uh, the pop culture lexicon and you're not really even sure where, where it came from. So if, if you love the films, or even if you don't, you're, you're going to enjoy this because it's written from a fandom perspective. It's not written to be over analytical or, or, or too much of a critique, but we wanted to look at the character, its origins and everything that it's brought us, but mainly the films and the films that we all continue to love. It's very well researched. You definitely took, you got into each one of those films and each one of those actors. I highly recommend this book. It was really fascinating to read. It brought back a lot of nostalgic memories. And I had my own little underwater white lotus that could swim <sighs> underwater when I was six. So for me, like no. I was, yeah. We, we, we were just talking about one eccentric billionaire and Jeff Bezos. Uh, Elon Musk owns that lotus from the Roger Moore era. He has the exact Lotus that was in um, uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only, uh, or, or Spy Who Loved Me. He has the exact Lotus from that film, the underwater one, so interesting. Right. So mm -hmm. just like memories like growing up and, and knowing all this stuff and rewatching. they're always, like I think you mentioned on TNT, they used to have this always Bond show. So I was always watching that, so even the old ones. Uh, Who's six, your favorite James Bond? Bond? I think Connery. I like Connery. I think yeah, so. I like. I didn't really. I wasn't really super critical. Like I liked more a lot, and of course yeah. I like Daniel Craig. So I, I, I just like the thing. I, I didn't really ever go. God, this guy's terrible. You know. I no. I think that there's no. Yeah. There's no such thing as it's like it's like pizza. There's like no such thing as bad pizza. There's varying degrees of good, but there's no such thing as bad. And um, and that's how I felt about the, all the actors who portrayed Bond. I will say, when I saw Daniel Craig. In Casino Royale, it was the first time I'd considered there might be someone better than Sean. It was the first time I was like, wow, this guy is incredible. And when I was writing my list, there was a couple of times where I had to say, is it, is it Craig or is it Connery? Is it Craig or is it Connery? But when re-watching the films, Connery just wins me over. The one thing that I give him above Craig is he had a little bit more charm and humor just a little bit more that I thought added to, to his, to his uh, version of the character. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all all worthwhile watching. One more question from Drone Dynasty. What's your favorite James Bond song? Oh, it's Nobody Does It Better. It, it is. The Spy Who Loved Me, Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better. I, I just love that song. Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger is great. Again, she um famously passed out when recording the song, Goldfinger. She was wearing a very tight, uh, I guess it was called a bustier of some sort. And um, she tried to hold that last note as long as she could. And she ended up fainting at the end of the recording session, which was something I found really fascinating. Now, again, it could be fabulized, as I said prior, but I I'm going to run with that one. It's a good story. Brad, where's the best place for people to get Bond, James Bond? Um, you can get Bond, James Bond at either bondjamesbondbook.com, where there's also a companion podcast with Mike and I, where we talk about each of the films for about 30 minutes, what we liked, what we didn't like, um, things of that nature. And also, you can get it on wherever books are sold. Amazon is probably the easiest retailer, Target, Walmart, you know, books a million, et cetera, et cetera. But bondjamesbondbook.com has links to your favorite book retailer. Gotcha. Or you can Bond pick it up at a Barnes Bond, and Noble. I'll put that you. in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Bond James Bond book, right? Bond mm -hmm. James Bond book. And uh, I really, what's the social media? If people want to reach out to you, is it through Bond James Bond book as well? They want to contact uh, you? Yeah, social media, Mike and I have our own channel, so you can follow them just at our names, at Brad Gilmore, at Mike Kalinowski. You can find me Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm very responsive to all Bond fans. I will engage you in a dialogue about any of these films and who your favorite actors are or, or who your least favorite actors are. I'm, I'm willing to have the conversation with you. And on that Bond James Bond companion podcast, I do want to say I had that interview with George Lazenby. If anybody out there wants to listen to it, very interesting gentleman, um, very interesting gentleman to listen to. So I really appreciate you, William, for having me on. I, I, I'd be uh, happy to come back anytime if you want to talk film or Bond, Back to. to the Future, pro wrestling. I, I run the gambit, whatever you want to talk You're about. You're outstanding, man. You really are a great, great uh, guest. So I really appreciate you coming on. Keep in touch. I'd love to have you back to talk about Back from the Future. But again, we talked about today, Bond, James Bond exploring the shaken and stirred history of Ian Fleming's 007 with Brad Gilmore and Mike Kalinowski couldn't make it. So thanks so much, Brad. Thank you. All right, stay there. Stay there.